0: Hello, this is John Goldthorpe, your host of the Nature Institute's podcast in Dialogue with Nature. At the Institute, we see science as a participatory process. We work to develop dynamic and flexible thinking that can perceive wholeness and do justice to the rich complexity of the world. We are intent on overcoming the limitations of a mechanistic view of life and, instead, learning from life itself to think in more living ways. We invite you to listen in and join us as we meet both natural phenomena and the nature of human inquiry. In today's podcast, I'll first be reading an essay, How Does a Mole View the World? from Craig Holdridge's new book, Seeing the Animal Whole and Why it Matters. Then I'll be in conversation with Craig about how this piece demonstrates a practice of observation and contemplation that reveals animals as intentional creatures, each with a unique way of being in the world. It is another form of science, but a science not based in models and theory. Craig Holdridge is the co-founder of the Nature Institute and has been studying, writing, and teaching biology and the philosophy of science for over 30 years. And now, how does a mole view the world? I remember longing as a child to experience, even just once, how an animal actually sees the world, to slip inside an ant and wander through the passages of the ant hill, to see with the eyes of a squirrel. This longing has not, in a straightforward way, been fulfilled. I can't get inside my cat, at least directly, and if I were inside the cat, would I be seen as me or as the cat? It seems like an unsolvable problem. We can't get inside the animal. 20th century behaviorism brought one neat solution to this problem by simply eradicating the animals inside. On this view, all we know is external behaviors. We can observe sequence of movement and also, through our own behavior, manipulate the animal's behavior. This is a modern version of Descartes' idea that animals are machines without souls. Untold harm has been done to animals on the basis of our ability to objectify them, to make them into things that we can treat as mere objects. Any human being who has not been totally blinded by dogma knows that cats, squirrels, mice, and deer are all creatures that experience the world. This knowing is not intellectual. It is a kind of felt-knowing based on the direct interactions we have with animals. The cat looks at us when we walk by and purrs when we stroke it. It raises its tail, arches its back, hisses, and focuses intently on the little puppy trying to come near. The gaze, the utterances, and the movements of the body are all gestures. They are expressive of the animal itself. To use the phrase of philosopher Thomas Nagel, there is something that it is like to be that organism. Each animal has a perspective, a point of view through which it lives in the world. When we observe an animal, we observe how it is living out this perspective, how it is living its unique way of being. We may never be able to take on this perspective as a first person, first animal, experience. But that doesn't mean the inwardness of the animal is an impenetrable black box. It is true that we create a problem for ourselves when we imagine the inwardness of the animal as totally distinct and other from what we call the body. But what we actually confront in our experience of animals is the ensouled living body. We can't talk meaningfully about the animal's behavior, for example, if we don't include how it actively and selectively relates to the world around it. This we can call the animal's intentionality. My cat reacts very differently to me than it does to our little puppy. That's its perspective, its way of relating, how it shapes its existence by interacting in different ways with different things. What we can do is to carefully observe an animal's behavior in the concrete context of different kinds of behavior to gain an understanding of its specific intentionality but we can't fully penetrate this behavior without attending to how it moves and the way this movement is shaped through the form and function of its various organs. We can discover how the shape of the wings and the configuration of muscles determine how a bird flies. The wings and muscles with their specific form are the bodily expression of the eagle's or the chickadee's whole style of existence, which includes its intentionality and behavior. The point is to build up vivid pictures of the animal from as many sides as possible. By continually immersing ourselves in concrete observation, and then connecting our observations to vivid inner pictures, we enter into a conversation with the animal. The animal begins to show itself. A mole is a highly specialized creature. Its limbs hardly seem to protrude from its barrel-shaped, compact body, and externally one doesn't see a neck. The head appears as a tapered extension of the trunk. Noting, as he always did, the relations between the parts of an organism, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the German writer and phenomenological scientist, remarked that, quote, The neck and extremities are favored in the giraffe at the expense of the body, but the reverse is the case in the mole, quote. The cylindrical form is ideal for moving through the soil and the dark fur and star-nosed moles, virtually black, can bend in all directions, so that it will lay flat whether the mole is moving forward or backward through its tunnels. When you look at the mole's forelimbs more closely, you see the proportionately enormous clawed paws used for digging subterranean tunnels. The paws are held with the large, broad palm turned outward and next to the head, When the mole digs, it stretches the paw forward, digs into the soil, and then scoops it away to the side. It's the kind of motion we make in swimming the breaststroke. Just as the form of its body and the form and function of its limbs express the mole's subterranean habitat and manner of digging, how it interacts with and shapes its environment, so do its senses and sense organs. Moles have very small eyes that are functional, but in many species, they are not discernible until one pushes aside the fur. Moles also have no external ears, enhancing the smooth, barrel-shaped form of the body. Through field and experimental observations, it's evident that neither sight nor hearing are its primary senses, which isn't terribly surprising for an animal that spends most of its life in the earth in dark tunnels. Interestingly, the star-nosed mole's eyes are usually visible and its forepaws are proportionally not as large as in many other moles. The star-nosed mole spends at least some time foraging above ground, but it also spends a good deal of time in water, using its limbs as paddles, often its tunnels leading to ponds, streams, or wetlands. This species is found in the northeastern United States and southeastern Canada. One finds the tunnels of star-nosed moles near and around wet areas so that they are often digging through mucky soil. But what makes the star-nosed mole stand out most is the star at the front of its snout. The star, which is less than half an inch in diameter, consists of 22 rays that surround the nostrils just above the mouth. Since no other animal has such a star-like appendage, it has intrigued researchers. I will draw below primarily on the fascinating work that Kenneth Catania at the University of Vanderbilt has carried out. When the mole is digging, the rays of the star are in constant movement. They contact and probe around, palpating, but not digging into, the earth. While digging through the soil with its paws, the mole lays bare its food, which consists primarily of earthworms, but also insect larvae and other small soil invertebrates. Catania noticed that although the forepaws may touch earthworms during burrowing, the mole doesn't stop, grab, and eat the worms. But when a ray of the star comes into contact with a piece of earthworm, the mole orients the star around the food, touching it rapidly and numerous times with the rays. It then moves its snout so that the small and inconspicuous eleventh pair of rays, which lies just above the mouth, touches the worm, upon which the food is engulfed. The animal always goes through this sequence before it eats anything. Here's a Catania quote. The star moves so quickly that you can't see it with your naked eye. Scanning its environment with a rapid series of touches, a star-nosed mole can find and eat five separate prey items, such as pieces of earthworm we feed them in the laboratory, in a single second. Close quote. Although it surrounds the nose, the star is not part of the mole's sense of smell, and the mole doesn't use it as an appendage to grab and handle food. Whether the star helps the mole perceive temperature differences, or maybe even detect the electrical properties of its environment, is still open to debate. The development of this mobile and sensitive appendage is correlated with other changes in the face and jaw. The muscles to move the star are highly developed, while the jaw muscles have weakened and the lower jaw is very thin-boned. This is a telling example of what the great French comparative anatomist Georges cuvet called the law of the correlation of parts. In Goethe's words, nothing can be added to one part without subtracting from another, and vice versa. When Catania looked at the anatomical fine structure of the rays, he discovered an extraordinary organ of touch. Under a microscope, the star's surface looks like a honeycomb of about 25,000 little dome-like structures called emir's organs. Each emir's organ, in turn, consists of three different types of sensory receptors for detecting vibrations, such as the wiggling earthworm, pressure on the skin, and the texture of objects. As Catania discovered, the star, and here's a Catania quote, Is supplied with more than 100,000 large nerve fibers. By comparison, the touch receptors in the human hand are equipped with only about 17,000 of these fibers. Imagine having six times the sensitivity of your entire hand concentrated in a single fingertip. So we have to imagine an extremely fine sense of touch concentrated in the star. In imagining the tactile world of the mole, We must strip away what is so familiar to us our colorful and airy world of sight and hearing we can picture ourselves in a dark quiet enclosed space where the surface of our body touches mirrored objects since our sense of touch is most refined in fingertips and tongue we can imagine concentrating our perceptions of weight texture and temperature through these organs in this way we can begin to acquaint ourselves with a tactile world which normally stands in the shadows of our more dominant and focal visual and auditory experiences. When I was about 13 years old, I spent a good deal of time with friends crawling around in the rain catchment pipes that ran under streets of the town I lived in. They got smaller and smaller to where you couldn't turn around anymore. We'd lie there for a while and then wriggle our way back out. I shudder at the thought of having done this and wouldn't go two feet into such a pipe today. But at that age, I lived, evidently, in a different consciousness that allowed those journeys into a narrow, tactile space. In his description of the Mole Star, Catania makes an illuminating comparison to other senses. When we use our eyes, we are continually active in at least two ways. While reading, for example, we focus on particular words— And yet, at all times, the center of attention is seen within the larger context of sentences and words that come before and after. Or when we're walking through a landscape, we focus on a bird flying through the bushes, but we also see the surroundings as a backdrop. This contrast between focal attention, foreground, and peripheral background has its anatomical correlate in the fovea of the retina. Which is strongly innervated and used for focusing on objects, and in the periphery of the retina, which helps us see the overall surroundings. Catania suggests that the way moles use their star reveals a similar twofold awareness of the environment. Continually moving its outspread rays in all directions, the mole probes its tactile world. It's a bit like us going out with our eyes wide open but without focusing. We're open to what comes. When the mole comes into contact with potential food, it focuses on it by touching it with the 11th pair of rays. Only then does it eat. Like with the eye, the contrast between focal sensitivity and more general awareness finds its physical reflection in the anatomy and physiology of the star and the star-nosed mole's nervous system. The eleventh pair of rays has a higher concentration of nerve endings than the other rays. The nerve fibers lead to the sensory field of the cerebral cortex. Brain studies on other animals and the human being have shown that more sensitive organs or tissues are connected with larger areas of the neural sensory field. Brain space is not a function of the size of the organ, but of its sensitivity. The fovea of the retina has more brain space than the rest of the retina, just as the sensory field of the human tongue is much larger than that of the trunk of the body, excluding the limbs. Catania and his colleague, John Coss confirmed this correlation in the star-nosed mole. By far, the largest of the sensory field is represented by the star. The next largest area is for the paws, followed by the area connected to whiskers behind the star on the snout. What surprised them was that the brain field for the star was actually divided into ray-like projections, a star within the brain. The brain ray for the small 11th ray was much larger than each of the others, indicating how the animal focuses its sensitivity through this part of the star organ. So even into the fine structure of the brain, we find that the poles of focus and background in sensory activity are represented. Although there is no comparable human organ, we can gain an idea of the star as a sensory organ since we are also sensory beings. In sense activity, we have the interweaving of open exploration and centered focusing. With sight, we know this interplay well. Sight is our primary sense through which we focus our attention on the world. But without the background, without the general sensory openness that allows us to take in a whole picture, we wouldn't see anything. This mutual relation between focus and background metamorphoses in each particular sense and in each animal with its specific configuration of organs and senses. For example, the sense of smell is usually not a focal sense in human beings, but it is for a fox. Once I was following the tracks of a red fox in the snow and came upon a slightly raised spot with some twigs of a bush sticking through the snow upon which it had urinated. This is a fox's scent marking. It smelled musty and like a mild form of skunk scent. I realized how often I had smelled this scent on walks, but never put it into any context. I found a few more scent markings and had a flash of what it must be to be a fox. Nose low to the ground, wandering through a world of scents and at the same time putting scents out into the world. To enter into the world of the star nosed mole, we must leave behind so much that is familiar to us. It's a dark world of continual contact with the cool, moist earth. The mole digging through that earth with large, powerful paws, and an organ out front, in continual movement, probing and discriminating. A mole's eye view of the world is a view through touch. A version of this article originally appeared in the Nature Institute's newsletter, In Context, Spring 2003. I'm sitting with Craig Holdridge at the Nature Institute in his office, and we're going to have a conversation about his portrayal of the mole, focusing upon the concepts that he lays out in his introduction, as there he gives us an understanding of what it means to engage in an embodied form of scientific practice that brings forth a relational understanding of the organism, its environment, and the role that the scientist plays in striving to understand the world. This will help identify several key organizing ideas that we use again and again in our work at the Institute. By making these implicit ideas explicit, we hope to guide anyone working with this orientation to be conscious about what they're doing, why they're doing it, and as importantly, the ramifications that come forth from this form of practice. Let's start right in now with our discussion. In the first paragraph, you write, I can't get inside my cat, at least directly. And if I were inside the cat, would I be seen as me or as the cat? It seems like an unsolvable problem. We can't get inside the animal. And yet, there is a way in which we believe we can get glimpses of the animal in its wholeness and have a better understanding of what it is like to be that creature. But we don't ever claim we have a full understanding. Mm -hmm. We can only get greater and greater understanding, all the while knowing we never get it all the way because we can't be that creature. And and yet we take this project seriously of this exploration and feel that it brings forth many fruits, Mm -hmm. even though we know it will never be done. Mm -hmm. Right.
1: And it's not I mean I think it's Henry Bortoft who points this out at some point where he makes a distinction between totality and wholeness mm. that sometimes people with you know, all we need to do is know a little bit more. I mean if we can get more and more to the totality, have all the facts, then we've got we've got the problem solved. But that's not the case. That and that's this interesting characteristic of this way of knowing is that you can gain glimpses of the wholeness that are, I think, truly expressive of the animal as a unique way of being in the world. And that doesn't mean you know everything about it. What it means is is through the way you have entered into a dialogue with the creature something of what we could call its character of what I, and I use this or they use this word way of being has shown itself to you. Just like when you get to know a person, you get glimpses better. You know, the person you have more than glimpses of, Oh yeah, that's how they are in the world or they, how, how they deal with these kinds of issues or whatever. So that, it's something that I think could probably infinitely grow, and yet it's not an additive process. It's not that uh, one new fact and then I've got it. It could be, and I've experienced this, I don't have an example at the moment, of that I'll learn something about an organism that becomes, where I say, oh, now I get the whole much more clearly through a detail. Right, That the detail becomes an entryway into a deeper understanding. So that's why I continue to read about new things that they found out about this animal or that animal. That's interesting. It can be revelatory or not. Sometimes I'll read things and say, well, I don't know what to do with that. It doesn't speak. So this kind of revelatory quality.
0: I think I have an example from your work where you had that aha. Yeah. And that's in your description of the frog and working with the frog when you came to the Eurostyle. Right, yeah. And then I think you had an aha and where in the frogginess of the frog became more apprehendable to you through the morphology of that particular bone and the way it allowed the frog to move through the world. Yeah. So let's talk about the Eurostyle for a minute as an example.
1: All these poor listeners, what's an Eurostyle? At any rate... As you probably know, if you've ever looked at a frog, frogs don't have tails. And morphologists who go into great detail will say, well, wait a minute. They have a bone that's integrated into the pelvic apparatus that is, and they have good reasons to say this, is a metamorphosis of the tail. But instead of it extending out of the animal in the back, it's integrated into the pelvis, which, and it has a stabilizing character helping to stabilize the pelvis. It might be more than that, but that's what mainly is reported upon. For a creature that has exceedingly strong rear legs through which it hops in the world right a very unique anatomy for a vertebrate you know for these big hopping rear legs so you have something has been an organ i'll just say a bone or bones that typically have a completely different expression and uh, i don't like the word function because there's never one function there are all all awful multiple functions so in multiple ways, uh, is integrated into the organism as a tail. Now it becomes inside the body part of its leaping life, right? So in that moment, it's like, aha, there you see something of this integrated nature of the frog by comparing, that's this dry word we use, comparing with other creatures This is the comparative morphology where you can say there's something same, but that something same has become completely different in this context. And that tells you something about the frog. Yeah.
0: So, and you said the hopping nature of the frog. There's something essential about frogginess conveyed through its ability to hop. And that we all know is a characteristic gesture. Yeah. Just as you're going to talk about the gestures of the mole. We use this term all the time, gesture. And the gesture is an expressive one. You're talking, your eyes are moving, your eyebrows are dancing, your hands are moving. These are all expressive Mm. of excitement and interest. Yes. Yeah. And somehow the inside of you is being exteriorized. And that's the only way I get the inside of you is through those gestures. Yeah. Yeah. And that's essential because, as you said, we can't add this up to ever get the whole organism. And I wanted to stress this a moment. When you talked about Henry Bortoft and conventional science's approach that there's a implicit belief, maybe I'll say, that someday we'll get there when we get all the facts. Mm -hmm. First of all, we know we'll never get all the facts, so even such a statement. Mm -hmm. But even more importantly, I think, is that at least from my perspective, there's a naivete in that orientation in thinking that we're going to get a full understanding of the animal by assembling these facts when what we do get more and more precisely is an ability, as you alluded to earlier, to manipulate the animal with greater and greater confidence because of these facts and the way that we put them together, mm-hmm. which is different than them being in any way implicitly related in that way in the animal itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And exactly. it's this distinction which is so yeah. important. Yeah. No, I agree. That's right on. So in that, if we go to the second paragraph here, and I'll just read it and I'll stop about halfway through. 20th century behaviorism brought one neat solution to this problem. Let's remember the problem is in relation to the cat. And if I were inside the cat, would I be seen seen as me or as the cat? It seems like an unsolvable problem. We can't get inside the animal. So here's the, as you said, 20th century behaviorism brought one neat solution to this problem by simply eradicating the animals inside. On this view, all we know is external behaviors. We can observe sequences of movements and also, through our own behavior, manipulate the animal's behavior. Which is what I was just stressing. Through our own behavior, we can manipulate the animal's behavior. Now, here's your statement. This is a modern version of Descartes' idea that animals are machines without souls. Untold harm has been done to animals on the basis of our ability to objectify them, to make them into things that we can treat as mere objects. So let's acknowledge this word soul, which is not a modern term and one that no self-respecting scientist would use in any kind of scientific paper. And yet you're pointing to something important because in contrast to soul, You're saying we turn them into an object. And I want to stress, and then we'll talk about this, your actual sentences, untold harm has been done to animals on the basis of our ability to objectify them. Then you have a dash to make them into things that we can treat as mere objects. And I want to focus on this to make them. We are doing something that allows us to conceive ...of the living being as an object. And that's part of what you mean to make. hmm
1: Yeah. And the making is a conceiving them of things. That's the conceiving beginning. Conceiving of them as things. As things. Conce- conceiving them as things is the beginning of making them into things... ...in the way I have put it mm-hmm. here. And so conceptually, it's an object. It's a thing. If it's an object... We can manipulate it. We don't have to worry about satizing an animal if we want to do an operation on it because it's just a thing, right? That perspective was, in extreme cases, was something that people actually held. I grew up in the environment of behaviorism, which isn't really around anymore. Mm-hmm. It's not around in the sense of a dominant Theory is the way it was in the 1960s and, and 70s. And now people all the time, they don't use the word soul, but they speak about the intelligence of animals, the effective nature of animals, how animals think, how animals have mind. This started in the 80s, I think. I'm thinking of a few books where scientists started speaking about. The inwardness of animals, you know, using all different kinds of the mind of animals, animal minds. So this is something that was not what you would do 60 years ago, but has become part of the study of the behavior of animals. People that we just cannot ignore this fact that we all take for granted when we're interacting with animals that they have something very much like we do, whether we call it a soul or a mind or intelligence or thought, whatever. And nonetheless, we still have a whole part of our society, also in science, that treats animals as objects. In the way we manipulate them, in the way we have factory farming, et cetera, et cetera. We don't need to go into the details. So, that current of action, of doing, this ability to objectify is uh, still very strong in our culture, even though there's been an incredible movement away from this kind of primitive behaviorism that was very strong
0: many years ago. And Craig, this will sound like a promotional statement, but I just mean it so sincerely. On that line, one of your pieces, which is in Making the Animal Whole book, is the the cow, organism or bioreactor? I think that's the title. Is that right?
1: Well, that was the title of the original article. It's not the way I title it in the book, but that doesn't matter.
0: Right. But, but that, my point yeah. is is that when we still look at factory farming, and yeah. in particular the cow, which you spent a great deal of time on, yeah. you can see in the title, when the original title, the cow as organism or bioreactor, that the bioreactor is meaning that it's a producer of milk and methane, right? And that you go into that in quite detail. But this is how when you view the cow as strictly being something that provides benefit to us rather than being concerned with the inherent dignity of the cow, Mm. we get into, as you describe it quite clearly in an essay, great horrors that I think most humans would feel is a moral transgression when you look at it. Closely enough. Yeah. And so this is kind of the consequence of these two worldviews. Yes. Right.
1: And it's a very complex thing because you're dealing with not only, I could say, the science of objectification, you're dealing with our economic system of increasing production, Mm -hmm. of an economic system based on egotism, right? Based on if I do what's good for me, the whole will get better, right? And kind of the, the foundation of, of capitalism, this idea of the egotism of many will turn into something good. So you have the thought framework of objectification in science, but then you have all the affective nature of people going into egotism and the ability to distance inwardly when you do something horrible. It's a really complex field of we human beings are complicated and not very transparent creatures.
0: So now we're going to get to something that is another aspect that's at the core of the orientation here, and I'll read this next paragraph. Any human being who has been not totally blinded by dogma knows that cats, squirrels, mice, and deer are all creatures that experience the world. This knowing is not intellectual. It is a kind of felt knowing based on the direct interactions we have with animals. The cat looks at us when we walk by and purrs when we stroke it. It raises its tail, arches its back, hisses, and focuses intently on the little puppy trying to come near. The gaze the utterances and the movements of the body are all gestures. They are expressive of the animal itself. Now, what I wanted to emphasize here is all creatures that experience the world. So our focus is often on, as we said, what's it like to be a cat? What's it like to be a mole? But how do we come into some Understanding that we're confident is not a projection on our part, but gives us a sense of what's their experience like.
1: This is where you get into the really difficult territory, right? You see, even in the way I described it here, I'm talking about things that I can experience with the animal, on the animal together with the animal, the purring, the hissing. The way it lies in the sun, so completely relaxed. All these observations of the way it moves, well, the way a cat moves when it's stalking a mouse. I mean, it's amazing. So I'm very oriented towards my sensory experience. I'm oriented to how the other creature is being in the world in a way that is accessible to me. Without right away projecting a lot of my stuff into how the animal is actually experiencing that in the moment. And that's the problem of anthropomorphism, which we have to use all of our capacities as human beings that we can in order to start this dialogue with the other creature. But we want to do it in a way that we're not projecting our stuff into the animals. And I do find a lot of that. In the way people speak about animals, that right away they would say, "Well, the cat is feeling this at this moment, and I say, "Well, do I know that? But I can certainly see the tension I can experience the tension in its body, the way it's holding its limbs, the way it's crouching down, and you can literally feel sense feel how its attention through its eyes is right on that mouse. Those are all things that I think are highly objective in the sense that we normally use the term, I'm with the phenomena, without my then saying, well, it it really has a desire to get that mouse, whatever that would mean. So I'm personally very careful and probably for many people way too careful in wondering, well, do I really know that? I'm going to watch out there. Yeah, I'm just careful by nature, that's all.
0: Listeners don't know of our friendship, but I think one of the things you can say is you are certainly more careful than I am in, in many regards. However, I want to point this out, that in your approach... And when I say your approach, not only your methodological approach, which is not your own, you're in the line of a tradition and you have mentors and teachers and there's a whole body of work of which you are expressive. Mm -hmm. Then there's Craig Holridge, the individual who may be a little more cautious by nature than I am. That's what we're saying, right? Nonetheless, even through all your great cautions, and this is the part that I think is so important, is that even with that caution and your concern to not project in any way onto the organism something that you cannot be confident is an aspect of the organism's experience, you still again and again bring us to an understanding of how the ways that conventional science objectifies in the way that we've just been doing it, thingifies, machinifies de-souls, de however you want to say it, the life of the animal. And therefore, the relationship we have with the animal, the moral consequences can be muted or totally silenced. And again and again, your work, the emphasis on observation, experience, and relationship brings a felt sense of responsibility on the part of the human meaning the ability to respond to what really does present itself rather than an objectified picture of what is there. And in that gesture, the human, this human who's speaking right now, finds themselves transformed in that I feel more intimate and therefore more careful in my actions that are of consequence in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, but I think that's kind of enough for now meaning kind of enough for the next few hundred years in terms of tempering our behavior.
1: Yeah, I agree completely. And yet then I see we live in a world that makes it really difficult to not participate in the exploitation of our fellow creatures. I'm participating in it all the time whether I like it or not even though I'm trying not to in some ways so that's the caveat in this in the sense that this sensibility is really important it makes a huge difference and yet it's still not easy maybe for someone to go into a store and nonetheless buy the steak that comes from a factory farm The treated the animals this way, the plants that were
0: mistreated, etc., right? Absolutely. And I think reminding you who needs no reminder (laughs) that our work is based on observation, experience, relatedness, and always a cognitive checking. That one is not falling into objectifying and all the logical consequences and stories that can come from such an objectification. Mm -hmm. And therefore, when I go to the grocery store and I feel like a steak tonight and I look and see where that steak came from and the one who's the local grass fed is not available and the factory farm steak is available. I do one of two things if I'm in a space that I would most like to be in most often, I say, no, not today. Mm -hmm. If I do buy the steak, this is the interesting thing, and I say this with all the ambiguity that implies, I feel a sense of betrayal when I buy that steak. And have I betrayed the animal or have I betrayed myself? Both. And I feel that. And I think that feeling, as opposed to being anesthetized, is actually helpful and puts me more and more likely to be on the right path.
1: Yeah, 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 that's important.
0: So again, yeah. not to deny yeah. that I actually am grateful for that feeling of betrayal. Mm-hmm. Because in a way, I'm still not mature enough to be true to it. <laughs> I'll buy the stake, maybe, right? Yeah. And that's what I, I think that's a good definition of mature. I'm not mature enough, mm-hmm. but it doesn't matter. It's still better than not. Next paragraph, to use the phrase of philosopher Thomas Nagel, there is something that it is like to be that organism, End quote, each animal has a perspective, a point of view through which it lives in the world. When we observe an animal, we observe how it is living out this perspective, how it is living its unique way of being. Clear enough, yeah? Yeah. But now let's get into the next one. Uh We may never be able to take on this perspective as a first person, first animal experience. But that doesn't mean the inwardness of the animal is an impenetrable black box. It is true that we create a problem for ourselves when we imagine the inwardness of the animal as totally distinct and other from what we call the body. But what we actually confront in our experience of animals is the ensouled living body. We can't talk meaningfully about the animal's behavior, for example, if we don't include how it actively and selectively relates to the world around it. This we can call the animal's intentionality. My cat reacts very differently to me than it does our little puppy. That's its perspective, its way of relating, how it shapes its existence by interacting in different ways with different things. Now, Craig, when we started, I said there's often so much that's implicit and easy on the surface to digest that one could scoot right over and go, yeah, I understand that. Of course, that's obvious. This is one of those paragraphs. There are huge claims here, right, in terms of an orientation to the world. Where's a claim? (laughs) Uh, Okay, so first of all, you do this subtly. We've already spoken about this a great deal, but that doesn't mean the inwardness of the animal. So, okay, we're now saying there's inwardness. Inwardness. Okay, Okay, this this is a big deal. That's a big deal,
1: yeah.
0: Then the very next sentence. And this is very subtle, and this is of your nature, that this subtlety here, because you don't want to put it right in the listener's face. You want them to subtly go, oh yeah. And that oh yeah is, it is true that we create a problem for ourselves when we imagine the inwardness of the animal as totally distinct and other from what we call the body. So we referred earlier to Descartes. And you're reframing this because this is exactly Descartes' move that we want to not only conceive of them as totally distinct, we want to conceive of them as actually separate. And the mystery then becomes what's the relationship? Well, we're pointing out that it's only a mystery because of the cognitive move of presuming they're inherently separate and therefore the puzzle, what's the relationship? And you say it this way, you say, it is true that we create a problem. Well, this problem is one of the primary problems of Western culture in a nutshell. Yeah. So this is what I mean by it's subtle and it's easily overlooked that you're bringing up the most fundamental assumptions we have and don't even take to be an assumption. Mm -hmm. Because it's so implicit in everything we do in the West. Yeah. No, you're right. It's uh, all true. And then you say, but what we actually confront in our experience of animals... Here we go, is the ensouled living body. What the heck does this guy mean, ensouled living body? Well, then you actually kind of tell us. We can't talk meaningfully about the animal's behavior, for example, if we don't include how it actively and selectively relates to the world around it. This we can call the animal's intentionality. Again, subtly, how it relates to the world And we can call this the animal's intentionality. This relationship you're talking about is is somehow the bridge between inside and outside.
1: Yeah, and it's, I mean, this is this interesting place that as long as we're in our experiences and just talking about our experiences of animals, for example, animals doing things, we don't really have any problem, right? We can just do that. And then the moment we start analyzing it or stepping back from it and trying to conceptualize it, get clear about it, then we run into problems. I mean, if we stay with the intentionality, this, what I was saying before, that when the cat is focusing on the mouse, that is, it's intending relating to the mouse in its cat-like way, very different than a, than a fox. ...relates to a mouse hidden in the snow, which it does in a very different manner. So you're talking about, and this is tricky, because the moment you say the intentionality is moving from the eyeball of the cat to the fur of the mouse, you're talking nonsense... You're thingifying something you can't thingify. Nobody would actually say that, but that's this tendency. You say, well, where is the intentionality, Craig? Where is it? Show it to me. I know where the eyeball is. I know where the fur is. Show me the intentionality. I can't. So this is this problem that we have, that the moment we try to be clear about things, our tendency will be to say, I can only become clear if I can thingify something. If I can point to it, nail it down, and say that's where it is in the world, in this space, at this time, the intentionality is not of that nature. It's the directedness of attention. Where is attention? Nowhere and everywhere. And so we can't speak about this aspect of the reality of a living being like an animal unless We're talking about, and now I'm going to use a different phrase that may sound weird. We're talking about something invisible in the the visible at all times. It's not sensorial in the sense of given to our multiple bodily senses. It's sensorial in the sense that it's given to our own ability to perceive something non-sensory in the sensor. With the moment you start talking like this, and the people are thinking, ooh, it sounds kind of strange and mystical, but it's not at all. It's just we're not used to attending to the reality of intentionality, of intending, of attention. We're not, we don't put our attention there. We're not, we just assume it all the time. We use it. We assume it. We're asleep in it. We're, in, we're dreamy in it. And we only wake up This is the modern dilemma. We only wake up when it becomes a thing. And we're talking about here, in this approach, waking up to the things that are not things.
0: Right? Nice. Yeah. And when you said the cat's attention is on the mouse, and when we see that focus, we presume we're not anthropomorphizing by, say, I as a creature as well can focus on something and give my attention to it. And must acknowledge that most of the things we give our attention to, we do not do so consciously. We do not make a conscious choice to give our attention to something. And yet what we give our attention to, I'll say non-consciously, unconsciously, that would be another half hour precise, yeah. more precise conversation to back that. But to give our attention to something brings the world into appearance with specificity. We are looking at something. And we also know what we give our attention to is what brings meaning into our experience. Mm-hmm. And so on that, we also grant that the cat leads a meaningful life because it has the facility to give attention. And I think this is trying to get at what you pointed That meaning is not a thing. Mm-hmm. That meaning is fully relational and only comes into existence through the relationship of I've got attention. I've got some desires. Oh, look, that meets my desire. I'm going to give my attention to that. Ah, meaningful. And that is a slippery thing because it all happens, as you were portraying it, in the invisible. And all we mean by invisible is nothing new-agey woo-woo. We simply mean not sense perceptible with our physical organs. But if any listener is following what I'm saying, then they're in the invisible with us Mm -hmm. in the realm of understanding. Yeah. Usually we have these words that are also difficult, mind, consciousness, awareness. Mm -hmm. And when I say to you and the listener, do you see what I mean? Mm -hmm. And you say, I do. Well, where's the reference for that scene? Because what we're saying is I understand, but what part of us understands? There's no part that we can point to. that we say is the understanding a lot of the orientation of today is thinking we will find that part which is no different than descartes it was the pineal gland and we think today it's somehow the brain is the mind which Mm -hmm. is i think complete nonsense but that's where we've gone to because of this way of objectifying Mm -hmm. and wanting thingifying it's a thingifying and this is what you're pointing out And I think this is what's hard often for people new to our work to apprehend because we're talking about a fully relational understanding of everything and a relational understanding is not a thing understanding.
1: I have the the sense that in one way, this is the easiest thing in the world to get, in in a sense, because we live in it all the time. To get, you could say, in a feeling way, that's not difficult. The difficulty comes in then. Trying to articulate it without killing it, without corrupting what it actually is. You notice that the boundaries of our language, all these things, that so much gets in the way of articulating something that, that are just completely coherent parts of our existence. And we just lose it when we try to make sense of it. Because our making sense has become so narrow, what we mm-hmm. call making sense, mm-hmm. right? Or what we expect to be the answer. If you can't show it to me out there, then it doesn't exist,
0: which is a problem. Another way to say that is what we've come to accept as a legitimate form of making sense has become so reduced, i.e. object thinking in your terms, Mm -hmm. that any other form of understanding is by default invalid. And I think that's what we're often up against, yeah. is trying to make room and recontextualize what it means to have a full understanding of something. When I say a full in this work, there's never a full understanding. Right. There's only fuller, a fuller, fuller continually right. fuller understanding. Yeah. And to accept that as the human condition is often difficult for those who want certainty. Yeah, yeah. this is how it is. Yes.
1: Yeah, And on the other hand, it's so interesting, the more you go this pathway, if we want to call it that, the more certain you are, and part of that's living in uncertainty, but it's an interesting thing. There's a sense of inner certainty, I'm working in a way that doesn't make me doubt what I'm doing, (laughs) or something, I don't know.
0: I think you do know, and the way I would phrase it at this moment, is that I am certain that the world is full of an animated and animating intelligence that I, over time, get fuller and fuller glimpses of, and I'm certain that I can be confused about that often. <laughs> and I'm also certain that I have real glimpses that I can sometimes put into words that are an insight mm-hmm. into the way the world really moves. And when I said animated and animating, I mean the world as an organism is alive and that intelligence is coherent, creative, and continually expressive. Of that I am certain.
1: Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Two more paragraphs. What we can do is to carefully observe an animal's behavior and the concrete context of different kinds of behavior to gain an understanding of its specific intentionality. I'll stop there for a moment. There's our method. What we can do is to carefully observe an animal's behavior in the concrete context of different kinds of behavior to gain an understanding of its specific intentionality. So why don't you say a little bit about that when I say, oh, that's our method.
1: I use the word behavior, and I could also talk about, because I do later in the article, and, and many of my animal studies are very morphological. So it's morphology, anatomy, physiology, so all these different aspects. And now I'm focusing here on behavior. Okay, how does this arise, this behavior, this way of doing something in the world? What's the context in which that appears? What's it doing at a different time of day? What's it doing... After it hasn't fed for quite a long time, what's it do when it comes into contact with this other kind of creature? So you're getting a picture of the animal through its different kinds of doings. And in you, this picture, which is not a photograph, it's like a painting coming into being over time, that something of this specificity of the way it relates to the world, you know, this mole underneath the ground most of the time in these narrow tunnels, you know, what a different existence from a chickadee flitting around in the bushes. Of course, we all know these things, but you go into those, you know, whoa, it's living a very specific kind of existence. And That existence is expressed in all the movements it makes in the star-nosed mole, this incredibly unique, interesting organ of the star at the front of its body. And so we're looking at how, and that's the next sentence, John, I'll go ahead, but we can't fully penetrate this behavior without attending to how it moves and the way this movement is shaped through form and function of its various organs. There was, I think he was a Dutch ethologist, so someone who studied animal behavior, who spoke about um, when, when still used the word instinct, um, which one doesn't use very much anymore. But he spoke about instinct as being an organ-like process that has become behavior. It's a form of behavior, just like there's a form of an organ, and those belong together in an animal. They're the same animal in different expressions. This how it's attending, specifically through this kind of movement, a shaped movement, that is shaped through the form and function, the activities of its various organs. We can discover how the shape of the wings and the configuration of the muscles determine, I don't like that word, how a bird flies. But determine means a chickadee cannot fly like an eagle. And an eagle cannot flit through the bushes like a chickadee can. And you can see how that is made possible, outwardly see how that's made possible through the configuration of its wings, its feathers, its bones, its muscles, all of that. So those are expressions in detail of what you're seeing when it flies in its very specific way. So that unity of the organism
0: and your phrase here is whole style of existence yeah nietzsche has this phrase style is everything and what he means by that is just this Uh that style is expressive and when you grok a a person or a being style you have something that you can never fully articulate but yet you recognize it oh that's craig if i see you coming down the road and i can't physically see you At a distance, I know it's you because I know your style of gait. Mm -hmm. I don't consciously know it. I don't even know how I know it.
1: Yeah.
0: But I know it. Yeah. And it's this, you have the line, whole style of existence, which includes its intentionality and behavior. So there they go together. And you Mm -hmm. can't say where one end and the other begins.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Craig, why don't you read the last paragraph here?
1: The point is to build up vivid pictures of the animal from as many sides as possible by continually immersing ourselves in concrete observation and then connecting our observations to vivid inner images. We enter into a conversation with the animal. The animal begins to show itself. Period. End of introduction to this article.
0: However, we're going to spend a couple of minutes here talking about something that again seems so transparent and easy. We come into a conversation with the animal. Our podcast series is called In Dialogue with Nature. Our year-long foundation course is called Encountering Nature. So when we say conversation, I think the listener can already get a sense of what we mean by all that we've said. But let's kind of talk about yeah, this for a yeah, second, that, right? I
1: think that's important because it's also... Again, conversation is a a metaphor of human conversation, right? Me talking with you and you talking with me. But there's a conversation is a back and forth. Otherwise, it's not a conversation. I've sometimes kind of made the comparison to something that's more like a monologue, where I'm speaking to you and telling you how the things are. That's one-directional. And one could think, and I know some people have asked me about this, and you say, well, isn't all science a monologue in one sense? Because you're trying to find out about what it can tell you, and you're directing. And in a way, that's true. I've written about this in other contexts. I'm stimulated by someone else, meaning a mole or a frog, to concern myself with it more, in the metaphor of a dialogue or a conversation. So... I've been in the world and something has come towards me that, that awakens interest in me. Where I use again this phrase, who are you? Oh, you're interesting. Can I get to know you? Now, I can't enter a conversation with this frog the way I'm entering a conversation with you, but what I well, I start observing how you're in the world. And in that doing, you're, that frog is telling me something. And it's only a conversation if I take what it's telling seriously. know, if I oh, that's not important. I'm not really listening to you. I want to do something with you. That would be a different thing. It's more, oh, you're showing me this. This is the way you hop. Oh, when I get close, you're always disappearing into the pond. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, So, we go on. So, this... It is a back and forth in as much as that I'm taking in what's coming towards me from the frog and I'm incorporating that into my understanding and into my further observations. So when it might or further questions, then it would be like in a conversation. Well, okay, why are you doing that? And then I have to observe more. And the telling may come or may not come. I mean, the response to my question, it may come or not, just like it is in a conversation. And it's not a grilling. It's not an interrogation, the image of the interrogation, where I only want the answers to the questions the way I ask them. That's narrow. And so I think that metaphor of the conversation or the dialogue is valid. And it's, for me, important to keep it in mind because... There is something respectful in that, that it's not an interrogation, that I'm wanting to be respectful to this being I'm interacting with. And the impetus is coming from me. I can't say that the frog chose to have a conversation with me. I can't say that. It's very true. I'm starting these conversations. All I can say is I've learned a lot through them. The world's showed me more and more through all these conversations I've had with these creatures that have enriched me. And then the question that people then ask is, well, what good does this conversation do the frog or the chickadee or the star-nosed mole? I don't know if we want to go there today. That's the really big question, really difficult question, wherein one part of man can say, I don't know, but another part of me can say, well, I can know that these creatures have at least had the opportunity to show something of themselves that might have otherwise remained completely hidden. So maybe there's a significance in that.
0: You're absolutely right. It's a big question. And one's answer to that question is of importance. And it's great. Just like a page turner in a detective novel, (laughs) we can leave the listener, hopefully wanting that next chapter, which will be a future conversation. We'll see. We'll see. (laughs) Thank you very much, Craig.
1: Thank you, John.
0: We hope that you've enjoyed this presentation. We'd love to hear what you think. You can write to us at info@natureinstitute.org with your comments and suggestions. You can become a subscriber and or download a PDF version of all the back issues of In Context and many other books, essays, and podcasts, including Craig Holbridge's essay that we discussed today on our webpage, natureinstitute.org. Thanks for listening.